0: country and my shadow. Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, Episode seventy three, I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody me my name. Hey, it's been a while. Last we spoke it was late June, and I was getting ready to head out for the summer pilgrimage. Amazingly, my Frankenstein plans came together exactly as envisioned, more or less, leading me from Oche, France, through Lourdes, over the Somport Pass, along the Camino Aragonese, up for a little bit of the Bastan, then over to the Norte and the Camino del Mar, before following the Inglés into Santiago. And then, for a victory lap of sorts, I followed the Portuguese in reverse, on to Porto and my flight home. The walk was a great reminder that your perception of crowds on the Camino is entirely predicated upon which route you're following. On the GR 653 in France, and on the Aragonese in Spain, I often had only a single other pilgrim for company. Overnight in the Gite or the Albergue, and never more than a handful. I was absolutely alone on the Bastan and Mar. On the Norte, there were maybe 50 or 60 pilgrims around me each day, which was more than enough to strain the pilgrim accommodations in some places, but still left me with solitude more often than not during the walk. Walking the Portuguese, though, that was a different story. It was Akin to those videos of salmon trying to swim upstream around a dam on a fish ladder. Each day, especially between Santiago and Tui, I passed hundreds and hundreds of pilgrims. Something made even more dramatic when walking in reverse. It's like 500 Buen Caminos in a day. So sure, on one hand, the Camino is as crowded as ever. Given that over 440,000 pilgrims have already received Compostelas this year, in late November 2023, it's fair to assume that well over a half million pilgrims have been on the Camino this year. That said, there are so many Caminos, seems like more by the day. There's so many to go around that even in the middle of summer, you can still find solitude if you want it. It's not that hard. Of course, Solitude can also be found on many other walking routes, and my guest today, Edie littlefield Sunbee, found it in her home state of California. Way, way back in episode 18, which, oh my god, was seven years ago. I am so slow at this. Well, anyway, back then, I devoted an episode to the California Mission Trail, and I'm sure I mentioned then that I feel a strong childhood connection to the missions having studied them in elementary school in California, and also having spent a lot of time in San Luis Obispo, where one of the missions is located. The route has continued to develop since then, and my Cicerone and colleague and friend Sandy Brown recently published a new guidebook to the trail. For now, though, my dominant impressions of the California mission trail have been shaped by Edie's book, The Mission Walker, and her remarkable story of recovering from cancer while walking through not only Alta, California, but also Baja. In the conversation that follows, we talk about her journey of healing, her love of walking, and her latest walk following the Old Spanish Trail across the southern U.S. It's good to be back. Littlefield Sunby of San Diego, California, is the author of *The Mission Walker*, an account of her 1,600-mile journey on the California Mission Trail. You can find her at themissionwalker.com. In March 2007, you were given a few months to live. Here I am talking to you in November 2023. That's pretty amazing. So, how are you?
1: It's a miracle. And my oncology team at Stanford, uh, Dr. George Fisher, has not used the word miracle too many times in the many years he's been in practice as an oncologist, but he has used that word in abundance with me. We have no idea why I'm alive, and I truly believe that the reason I've made it through so much, 79 rounds of chemo, 832,000 milligrams of chemo. The four radical surgeries, you know, losing 60% of my liver, to my colon, changed my stomach, my right lung, and part of my throat, plus thousands of rads of radiation. The only way, Dave, I was able to make it through that was by walking, by movement, walking. Our body is a healing machine. It knows what it needs to do at all times. And we just have to sometimes embrace and trust And follow the lead of our body.
0: In my mind, when I read your book, The Mission Walker, I had this idea that you were diagnosed and you were told that you had a few months to live. And then you set forth on the California mission trail and and the magic happened. But the diagnosis was 2007 and then you were following the California missions in 2013, right?
1: Exactly now, and how did it happen? Yeah, well, it took me six and a half years to get the cancer under control. When it was discovered, it was in eight organs, including a seven inch tumor in my peritoneum. I was filled with cancer and not given much hope of being able to make it through even a few months. And in fact, here in San Diego, where I was living at the time. I was advised that perhaps might I have aggressive treatment, just enjoy the remaining time I had left. It was like a bolt from the blue, like wild blue sky lightning hitting me, knocking me to my knees. And the process took six and a half years to get through that. As I mentioned, 79 rounds of chemo, 832,000 milligrams for radical surgeries. Well, the last thing we did was to take out my right lung. And that was really what ended up. I lost so many body parts by then. That is what ended up saving my life because I had the cancer. It came back in the liver and the lung at the same time. And that's two body cavities. And any oncologist will tell you that's bad enough when it's in one body cavity. When it gets into two body cavities, it's all over. But I was very, very lucky because I was able through radiation, through chemo, through surgeries, to cut it out, drown it out, and burn it out, and uh, I made it through that six and a half years, and after Stanford took out that right lung after six and a half years, that's when I knew I needed to walk. My body was broken, and I needed something to help put those broken pieces back together again. I needed a pilgrimage.
0: Is that how you thought of it as you Decided to set forth walking in California?
1: I knew that I was filled, so filled with, I was so filled with so many emotions after going through six and a half years of a very aggressive, radical cancer treatment and surgeries. And I didn't want to have a diminished life because I love life. I love it. And that's why I fought so hard for life. And I knew that if I did not want a diminished life, I had to do everything I could within my power to not have a diminished body. In other words, I had to do everything within my power for my one lung to function as two lungs and for my digestive system to function normally, even though it had been cut and severed and put back together and held in place with mesh. I knew that I, knew that I needed to do some things to heal my body. And I knew just instinctively that movement is how the body heals. Movement is what the body is meant to do. And moving is how we heal. And so that's when I I needed to move. I needed to walk. And it had to be not just a little walk, not just a little movement because I'd been through so much radical things with my body. My body was pretty broken. But my spirit was always in control during that entire time. And so on the way up to Stanford for many of my surgeries, I followed the old El Camino Real, which is Highway 101 here in California, the Highway 101, and there are those mission bells every mile. And that's when I first noticed them. I noticed them the day I was diagnosed with cancer. Because I pulled over along beside one that was close to where I live. And there was a spiritual connection with the mission bells and uh, driving up to Stanford over the course of years for treatment, surgeries. I'd see those mission bells alongside the road as my husband was driving me up. And I just wanted to get out and I wanted to hug everyone because I felt so enormously blessed to be alive. And how do you express? That blessing, how do you express that joy? I knew the way I needed to express that joy was through a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage, a walk of thanksgiving, a walk of joy.
0: From a distance, it seems hard to fathom that at a moment of peak fragility, you would set out on a demanding journey, an 800-mile walk that many would be intimidated by at peak health. Like all day, I, I see people talking about wanting to go out on the Camino to maybe only walk 100 kilometers and be supremely concerned about their physical ability to do that. And it was just the opposite in your case, it seems. How, how did you make sense of that, that you were going to go and accomplish this tremendous physical feat?
1: I never really thought of it in those terms I thought of it in terms of when you have something going on very serious, what can you do to soar above it, to transcend it? And that was my whole goal was to connect with people, connect with places, connect with God, and to experience life in a very visceral way. And that's why I started walking. And I was pretty broken, you know, six months after Stanford took out my lung. But I knew, I knew instinctively what I had to do. And after stage four cancer, you do so much to get through that. It really empowers you. It empowers you to accept the impossible. It empowers you to embrace the uncertain. It makes you aware that, hey, don't delay, don't waste you know, if you want to do something, do it, do it now. We don't have time. Life is such a brief moment. And if we want to do something, we need to do it.
0: One of the things that I most appreciate about your book is I read a lot of pilgrimage related memoirs. And sometimes I finish a book wondering if the person even enjoyed walking. Sometimes it feels like the walk is the ordeal that people push through in order to get to somewhere scenic at the end of the day. And that is not the case in your book. Oh no. What I get from your book is this endless love, this love of the walk that runs all the way through it. To the point that you don't actually describe the missions very much, right? Like you don't spend as much time on the the endpoints as you do on the walks. And you've mentioned that it's a walk of gratitude a walk of joy. In the book, you describe that you became a walking prayer. At another point, you talk about what it means to walk purposely. And I wonder if you could talk more about that. What did you have in mind when you thought about walking purposely?
1: What I thought about really was just expressing the joy of living, the joy of life, and also being able to uh, breathe. If I don't walk, I don't breathe because I have the one lung. And if I don't breathe, I don't live. And I fought so hard for life and I have such a joy of life. And as long as I walk, I can breathe. As long as I can move, I'm not sick. And it's part of the mystery, the power of mystery that life is to be able to do something like this. It was 796 miles, the 796 mile California Mission Trail. And by the way, I used... My book, The Mission Walker, I relate to 50 historical sources, pretty much all original journals and people who wrote about the California mission trail very close to the actual event itself, which was, it started in 1607 in Loreto to 1697, and then from 1697 to 1767, and then from 1767 to 1769. And then through the 1780s, 1790s, to the entire mission trail from Loreto, Mexico, all 1,600 miles of it, to north of Sonoma. Actually, north of Sonoma was actually in the in 1820s. So, you know, mission trails just don't happen. Mission trails, they have their own life force. And you feel this life force. That's what you feel when you're out there. And that's what I tried to capture in the writing. That life force... That spirit never, never dies. And you feel that you're walking on holy ground every step because you're relating to the past. And one thing I've always said is that walking is the one pursuit we have that allows us to experience the past, the present, the future all at once. I mean, think about it. I'm taking a step. The step I just took is in the past. The step I am taking is the present. The step going forward is the future. So in that rhythm of one step, you are experiencing the past, the present, and the future. Every step, every day. It's the rhythm. It's, it's a primal rhythm. And that's what we connect with in a long walk is the primal, the visceral, the experience of being alive, filled with joy. And I literally can feel every cell of my body tingle with life. And I've been able to feel that since the day I was diagnosed with cancer, told I had just a few months to live. And that's when I started walking and that walking got me through six and a half years of cancer treatment. And then when it was all over, walking since then has taken a diminished body and made it whole. It's taken my soul and it's restored and elevated and transcended. I'm transcendent. And when I was walking the California Mission Trail, after about four or 500 miles, when everything stops hurting and you develop the right muscles and, and you just give yourself into the walk and the pleasure and the joy and the beauty, you literally are no longer walking. You're soaring. And I know you feel that, Dave. I know you feel that. And it's kind of addicting. It's very addicting. And, and you know, the social scientists, scientists will say, oh, yeah, that's dopamine and all those other things you get. All those endomorphins, all that stuff. Sure, it's a natural high, but can you think of a better way to get high than to go on a walk, a long, long walk? And you also get addicted, not just to the physical endorphins, you get addicted to the spiritual endorphins. I mean, you are so connected with God, you're so connected with people, you're so connected with others who've walked before you and are walking with you and you know that we'll be walking after you you're so connected with them and well I always say if we walk more we'd love each other more because it's truly in walking in walking I think that that we really learn who we are and we learn about others and about where we are and all about it
0: yeah.
1: and also where we hope to be going
0: the point that you made about past, present, future and walking, I, I really like that. And it makes me think about the fact that when I'm running, I definitely get to the point where I I can't run anymore. I'm done. But when I'm walking, there's never a point at which I can't take one more step. And I feel like walking has made me a more optimistic person in the sense that I always feel like more can be done. It, maybe it can't be done quickly. Maybe it can't be done at the exact schedule I would like, but I can always take one more step.
1: And Dave, schedules get tossed out the window when you're walking. Of course, you're walking you know, very purposely, but you're walking to slow life down. Mm-hmm. I'm walking to slow life down and you want to savor life. You just feel such sadness for people going buying cars you feel sadness for people in 18 wheelers or motorcycles. And you even feel sorry for people on bicycles because they're going faster than what they can absorb than they can feel. And when we walk, we feel every step. We feel every breath. It's an elevated sense of being. And isn't that what we want is an elevated sense of being?
0: When you say the mission trail, trail connotes certain things, and being in California, being near the ocean, people who don't know anything about the California missions and the resurgence of the California mission trail might have ideas about something analogous almost to the Pacific Crest Trail, but the trail, such as it is, often does parallel the road, does parallel the highway. You mentioned the experience of having cars drive by, motorcycles drive by. Having just the sounds, the smells of auto traffic. And yet you seem equally at ease, at peace, enjoy walking in those contexts. Is that true?
1: That is true. And why? The California Mission Trail, there's two segments of it. This first segment, really the initial segment, it starts in Mexico, it starts 800 miles south of the California border, it starts in Loreto, Mexico. At one point in time, California on maps and everything, that was the only California that was known, and they thought it was a peninsula, and they thought it ended down, and it wasn't even Baja, California. It was California, and it was only three or 400 years after California was discovered that they set off, Portola, the, the Spanish explorers, and the missionaries set off north to see what was up there. 300, 400 years, they didn't know anything existed. So it was a walk of exploration for them. In uh, 1769, they started out and they walked that 900 miles, 800 to 900 miles. They got to San Diego, which they know, because the Spanish were the greatest seafaring explorers in the world at that time. And they knew, they knew where the ports were. They had mapped out the coast, but they didn't know what all was there you have to walk. You can't see it in a boat. You have to get off and you have to walk. And so that's exactly what they did. But when you talk about the California Mission Trail, Dave, and you're talking about the concrete from San Diego to Sonoma, which is 796 miles from San Diego, walking to Sonoma, it took me 55 days of walking. On average, I walked almost 15 miles a day for 55 days And that was starting five and a half months after Stanford removed my right lung. And it was removal of that right lung that was the whole reason that I got out there and I started walking the California Mission Trail. And when I got to Sonoma after 796 miles, I did not want to stop. That's how you feel on a long walk. And that's what you said. You know, somehow when you're walking, you can always take the next step. You always take the next step. You can be exhausted, but but you have the energy for the next step. Well, I got to Sonoma. I did not want to stop. I was soaring. I was so transcendent. But I did stop. I did stop. And that transcendence went away. The day-to-day mundaneness, the day-to-day life, The challenges of day-to-day living took away a lot of that transcendence. And then two years later, it came back in my remaining lung. The cancer came back in my remaining lung. My oncology team at Stanford told me it was going to happen. And indeed, it happened. Because that's what stage four cancer does. It's not curable. But they can get it into remission through surgery, through radiation, and through chemotherapy. And that's exactly what we've had to do four or five times. And so after I had walked that 800 miles, starting a few months after Stanford took out my right lung, two years later, after that walk, it came back in my remaining lung. I had it radiated at Stanford because it was a big tumor not a cluster of tumors in that lung. And I knew what I needed to do to heal and to perhaps stop, stop the cancer from exploding. I knew I needed another mission walk. And lucky for me, I knew the California Mission Trail does not start in San Diego, California. The California Mission Trail Starts in Loreto, Mexico, Loreto, Baja California, Mexico. That's over 800 miles south of the Mexico California border. And so I knew what I needed to do. And so I didn't waste any time. You don't waste time when cancer is in you. I didn't have time to learn Spanish. I didn't have time to do a lot of things. And you don't have time even really to plan a walk. Because one thing you learn with cancer is life is very uncertain. You get very comfortable with uncertainty. And Dave, I know you know from your pilgrimage walks, every walk is uncertain. Every day is uncertain. Every hour is uncertain. Every step is uncertain. So if you're looking for certainty, you certainly don't want a pilgrimage. If you're looking for certainty, you certainly don't want a long walk. But if you're looking for adventure, if you're looking for excitement, if you're looking for wholeness, if you're looking for transcendence, and you have some broken pieces, be it spiritual, be it emotional, be it physical, and frankly, we all do. We all do. Then a long walk, a pilgrimage is just what the doctor ordered. And what I always say is that it depends on how deep the spiritual malaise is, the emotional disturbance, the physical pain and suffering. If it's really, really deep, you just have to walk a little longer. And so that's why I walked 1,600 miles along the California Mission Trail. It took 1,600 miles to put all those pieces back together again.
0: You mentioned the uncertainty that comes with a the walk. There's the uncertainty of walking in Alta, California, where the question might be, am I going to have lunch from a 7-Eleven, a McDonald's, or a Whole Foods? But then there's the uncertainty of walking in Baja, California, where it's kind of like, who's going to be the next guy to show up with a mule to get me out of this cactus-infested wilderness? Like, Oh, yeah. when When I read your book, I knew just that you had walked the California Mission Trail. I had assumed that that just meant that you walked across California. And halfway through the book, you were done with that walk. And then there was a part two. And if I was impressed, surprised by what you did coming out of that initial cancer treatment in Alta, California, I was astonished concerned terrified that the journey that you took on in in Baja how how did your family grapple with that as it unfolded?
1: well that's a great question you know my husband he's a wild crazy adventurer <laughs> he hates to walk can you believe it, day he hates to walk he loves bicycles he loves motorcycles okay but bicycles are his thing and he's actually ridden his bicycle from San Diego to Vancouver, Canada. He's ridden his bicycle from San Diego to Vail, Colorado. You know, he's taken motorcycle trips literally all over the world. And thank goodness, I finally got him to get rid of the motorcycle and just stick with a bicycle. But he loves being out there. He loves being on his bicycle. And even though he hates to walk, he loves bicycles and I hate bicycles and I love to walk. We've still been married over 40 years. (laughs) Uh, We're very compatible. And so what's the secret to a marriage? The secret to a marriage is to value and respect each other. And in a life, just like on a long walk, like if I were to walk with you, Dave, and we were to start off on a 600, 700, 800 mile walk, a thousand mile walk, you and I might walk side by side, maybe at most two miles miles, because our cadence is totally different. You walk alone together on a long walk. And people who think, oh, you're going to get out there and people are going to join you. And and they do join you. But no one is going to walk with you more than a mile or two, at most an hour or two at a time. And then you're going to lose each other. Uh, Walking is truly a personal experience. I think what I've learned in walking has also helped my marriage and in my marriage has helped my walking. And that is a marriage is you walk alone together. My husband has his own means of transcendence, things that give him joy, that bring him enormous joy, pleasure, that awaken life. And he knows that I have in my walking, what awakens my life and my spirit. And when we find that we are so blessed and we've been through so much together, as you can imagine. And so how did he feel? He was excited for me. Was he worried about me? Of course he was worried about me. But he also had tremendous faith because every walk is a walk of faith. Every bicycle journey is a journey of faith. Every day we live is actually a day of faith. And so my husband, he supported me and he wanted to make sure I was safe, but he knew I would be, just like going through stage four cancer. Why do we make it through stage four cancer? We don't know, it's a mystery. Cancer, disease, wellness, it's all a mystery. For everything we know about cancer, 99% of it is still a mystery. For everything we know about our bodies, 99% is still a mystery. For everything we know about each other, 99% is still a mystery. And so mystery unfolds with life, just like it unfolds with a life, just like it unfolds with a marriage. And I've been so blessed that I have my family, that I have my children, who also love to walk, by the way, who have healed themselves walking. My husband, who loves to adventure, who loves riding a bicycle for thousands of miles, and who is content sometimes to get in a 20-foot camper van with me for several months and to ride his bicycle while I walk. Like right now, I'm walking the old California Mission Trail between San Diego and St. Augustine, Florida, 2,817 miles. I'm taking it in a segment, a few states at a time. I've already walked from West Texas, which is uh, west of the Pecos River, all the way to the Florida border, about 1,200 miles. But I'm walking that slow. I'm walking it in segments, not like I walked Baja, California, Mexico. I walked that in about a little over 60 days, all at one time, with the help of 20 vaqueros guides who helped me and kept me safe. And it was the greatest, wildest adventure. But I never, ever would have done that or even thought about that had I not walked from San Diego to Sonoma. See, you can never plan or prepare for a long walk. You can never plan enough because we're never prepared for what we expect, never prepared on a long walk. Every minute of every day is a surprise. And so when I made it from San Diego to Sonoma, that 796 miles, it gave me the confidence to get on a plane in Tijuana, fly down to Loreto, Mexico with nothing but the promise of a pack mule for 10 days and a vaquero, a cowboy guide for five days. I never, ever would have done that except for having finished the walk of Northern California. Would I be out there walking now across Texas, across Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and soon walking across Florida, and soon we'll be walking across Arizona, New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California? Would I do that had I not already experienced what I've experienced? No, no. Life is one step at a time, one day at a time, one journey at a time. Yes.
0: For people who haven't read the Mission Walker, that's a mistake they have to live with for the near term. They don't actually understand what is being referenced here. And I, I put the cart before the mule, so to speak, by asking you that first question Can you describe the state of the quote unquote mission trail in Baja California today?
1: Yes, it's not describable. I will use some words. Back in nineteen oh eight, of the American Geological Society, which is now National Geographic Society, the, the American Geological Society in 1908 described Baja, California, Mexico as the most wild and most primitive area on the face of the earth outside of the polar regions. That was 1908. Today, in 2023, and back when I walked it, it hasn't changed. But I like what a Jesuit missionary said who was out there in the middle of nowhere. He said, it's the most wretched, miserable place. It defies description. The roadless ranchos, it's the five Sierras. It's so steep. It's so wild. It's so desert. There's no water for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So you have to carry your water on a mule and you have to treasure every cup of water the same water that you try to use with toothpaste to brush your teeth you don't throw it out you drink it yeah you know you just I used had to use Pampers to wash because that's the only way I could get a bath by the way I love smelling like a baby out there in the middle of the wilderness (laughs) you had to have a sleeping bag you have to have a tent You have to be willing to sleep on old, sweaty mule blankets. You have to be willing to sleep out in the middle of nowhere with the sounds of wild animals and wake up in the morning and be careful because rattlesnakes sometimes like to scoot next to tents. But all of that is just how it is, how it is. And you deal with it as it is, like with stage four cancer, it is what it is. You deal with it. You can't make plans on how you're going to deal with it. It's so moment by moment, so visual, that only way you're going to get through it is just every moment dealing with what's hitting you. And walking the old California trail through Baja, California, Mexico, the old Jesuit trail, every hour of every day was dealing with what was coming at me. It was a cactus jungle. Cactus is so thick that the vaqueros are the most skilled people with machetes of anyone in the world and they had to oftentimes cut a path through cactus for us to get through because we were following the original el camino real and they knew exactly where it was how harsh it was but oftentimes it had not been traversed in many 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 years and was overgrown with cactus The vaqueros also knew where the water source was. And by the way, I had one vaquero at a time. And I truly, as you said a few minutes ago, I never knew where my next mule was coming from. I never knew where the next man or vaquero woman. Sometimes my vaquera was a vaquera. Sometimes a woman. Sometimes it was a couple. But I never knew where my next vaquera guide was going to come from. And I never knew. Where the next meal was going to come from but that's the kind of uncertainty that you have in a wilderness place and you have enormous faith and one of the things I learned you learn all these things you learn that when you're the most vulnerable is when you meet the most angels Mm. in fact angels seem to find you and I think it was a huge advantage that I was alone walking through Mexico a huge advantage because they knew I was on a pilgrimage. They knew I had cancer. They knew I was alone. They knew I was vulnerable. And I carried on the mule, Dave, I carried 4,000 U.S. dollars in pesos (laughs) on a mule. I also carried thousands of pills on that mule that Dr. Fisher, my oncologist, his physician's assistant, who's well-versed in wilderness medicine, she made sure that I had a pill for every possible thing that could happen to me. And I even had written out in Spanish on the bottles what it was for. You know, like, take this if you break your leg. Take this if a mule kicks you in the head. Take this if a rattlesnake bites you. Take this, take this, take this, take this. this. Bad water, da 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 What if, what if? But you know, at the end of that 900-mile Walk. I had not had one peso stolen from me. And this is in a country where the average salary is less than $300 a month. And I carried enough pesos that was a whole year's salary. Hmm. I did not have one peso stolen from me. And guess what? I had not taken one pill, Hmm. even though my digestive system is so compromised by stage four cancer. But out there in the wilderness, your body steps up to it. It steps up. In fact, it excels. That's when your body's at its best. It's when you're you're using it. And when you're you're learning with it. In fact, your body is teaching you things you had no idea. You just listen to your body. Also, it develops your ability to listen to your heart and your spirit and God, because out in the wilderness, the desert is silent, 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 except at night, and it comes alive, believe me, you don't want to be out there at night, but during the day, you can see nothing, it's 120 degrees out there, it's silent, and then you realize, hey, it's not silent out here, like it's not silent with me, it's filled with answers, answers, because in the silence is when you turn inward, like you do on every pilgrimage, on every walk, you turn inward. And the things you, you're just enlightened, the things that open up to your consciousness, it's beyond explanation. I know you've had it happen to you, Dave.
0: You mentioned the relationship between generosity and vulnerability, and that certainly rings true for me, because I, one of the things I recognize about myself is American upbringing, rugged individualism. I strive for self-sufficiency. I try to be prepared for everything. And when I was walking across the US, it occurred to me at one point in the trip, I've heard other people talk about how generous strangers can be. And I've been walking for you know however many days. I haven't experienced that. But the moment that I felt genuinely weak and needed help in that moment. I can think of three immediately. The first person I came across immediately volunteered it without a second thought, without me even needing to ask in two cases. And so there is something about that, that when when we express need, people are there to meet it. And I wonder to what degree when we're so focused on self-sufficiency that we are closing ourselves off to others.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We close ourselves, and today with our iPhones, that little bitty box. And by the way, just think of the words "outdoors," outdoors. You know, I mean, we used to live outdoors, and now, now we don't live just indoors. We live on a screen. We live in a screen. Can you imagine what that's doing to our soul, to our spirit, to our physical well-being? Living with a screen. And, you know, now I've just read a couple of days ago that universities are actually have courses now on small talk, chit chat. You know, how do you talk to somebody? Well, I tell you what, they don't need to teach a course. They just need to get out and take a walk because you learn to talk really, really fast. You learn to hear. You learn to hear what's in here. And actually your sense of hearing is developed such that you even hear with your eyes. You see with your ears. You feel with your feet. Every one of your senses is so energized, so so excited. And it's cellular, it's to the cellular level. When you are out there walking and you meet up with somebody that feeling of love, it just kind of overwhelms you. It's hard to explain. But but when you're out there, you feel, regardless of what's happening in the moment, you realize fear is not in the moment. Fear's in the mind. Whether you almost step on a rattlesnake, whether a mule wears up and almost knocks you off of a trail, or whether... A donkey takes off with your pack and runs into the wild. You know, it's like you deal with it. You deal with it. You deal with it. Yes, fear is not in the moment ever. And I realized that in cancer. Fear was not in the moment. It was in the mind. Though how do you get a hold of the fear that is in the mind? You get a hold of it by transcending mind, by just transcending emotion, by reaching out and connecting with your spirit. At least that's how I found it. And that's what you do on a pilgrimage. That's what we do with every mile. And that's why we feel so good. That's why we feel so safe. And even though we haven't prepared, nothing can prepare us for what we're going to encounter. We have faith that whatever we encounter, that it is what it is and all is well, all is well.
0: At the end of your walk, across Baja, you wrote, this had not been a spiritually transformative experience like the 800-mile mission walk from San Diego to Sonoma, but it was physically empowering and had taken me to my physical edge. I'm curious about that distinction, those different experiences. What do you think went into each of those?
1: Good question. It was so rugged. It was so wild. It was so such a miserable, wretched place and the, the conditions that the people, the beautiful people down there live live in, and how they have adapted a, a wonderful life. They've been out there 300 years on roadless ranchos. I've learned so much from them. And down there, that walk, my body was put through the most horrific things. And one thing that I realized when you have a vaquero, a cowboy as a guide, I didn't need to know how to speak Spanish because they're not going to, they don't want to talk to you either. They want to keep you safe. You don't do any talking. Cowboys do not talk, whether they're in California, Montana, or in Mexico. No, they had a job to do, and that was to keep me safe. And I was paying them for the mule, for the donkey, for their time, for the tortillas. And so they had a job to do, and they kept me safe. They had to get us to water. They had to get us someplace every day by three o'clock where it was safe to camp because the desert turns dark as soon as the sun goes down. There's no electricity, there are no lights. It's dark and it's freezing, freezing cold. It can be 120 degrees during the day. At night, you can absolutely freeze to death. The Carols know that. In fact, before I ever went down to Baja California, Mexico, A person who had gone on the old trail back in 1969, together with the Copley family from the San Diego Union Tribune, had sent a whole group of people down there to retrace the old Jesuit trail through Mexico. And a man, I met with him, he's now 98 years old, his name's Harry Crosby. And he said, Edie, do not go into the Sierras of Mexico without a guide, a man or a woman who was born there because they will keep you safe they alone will keep you safe and that's exactly as it happened it was those beautiful people and they had nothing and they gave me everything can i recite a beautiful story please it was maria luisa she had a very small goat ranch very small couple of acres And she sold goat cheese, hardly made a living, so poor. And we arrived at her rancho in the middle of nowhere. And it was about 4.30 in the afternoon. The sun was already going down very quickly, very, very quickly. Well, as we're unloading the animals, the sun dips before we have a chance to really even meet Maria Luisa. Well, she had a flashlight because there's no electricity there. All she had was a flashlight. Well, she with a flashlight, she had a tiny little propane single burner and she motioned for me to come in. She boiled water, she fixed some tortillas, she made me coffee, all with a flashlight. And then it was time for bed and she motioned for me to follow her. And I followed her into this little room and all there was was a curtain and it was palapas, so it's open on the sides, and she lived such a primitive way, but she had four concrete blocks, and on those four concrete blocks were planks of wood, and on those planks of wood, she had a couple of blankets, and she motioned for me to bring my sleeping bag in, and she scooted over on those planks of wood and made room for me and my sleeping bag, because Maria Luisa wanted to make sure I was safe from creepy, crawly things during the night. She wanted to make sure that the scorpions, the centipedes, the rattlesnakes, all those other things that creep and crawl during the night, she wanted to make sure that I was elevated above the ground. She shared her bed with me. And I found that kind of love, that kind of, if you will, Christian charity. I found that kind of love everywhere I went in Mexico, everywhere I went. The most beautiful honesty and love and acceptance and help. I also had a learning about gratitude. I learned what I could do with one cup of water. I learned that the shade from a small cactus plant was amazing. Just a little bit of shade was an amazing. I was so grateful for a little bit of shade. I was so grateful for a cup of water. And I realized that when we have everything, we're truly grateful for nothing. When we have nothing, we're grateful for everything. And when you're on a pilgrimage, when you're out there, Dave, as you were walking across the United States, as you are walking sometimes in the Camino, as I was walking across Mexico alone, when I have nothing is when I meet the most angels. When I have nothing is when I'm most grateful for everything. And that feeling of gratitude, once you feel it to the core of your being, it's a spiritual awakening. It's not a word. It's not a word.
0: I want to ask you about one other moment on the pilgrimage going back to Alta California and for all the the thanksgiving the gratitude the joy there was also something heavier there was the moment in the Salinas Valley when you had what struck me as a moment of catharsis and release what happened in that moment in the Salinas Valley for you
1: when you're on a pilgrimage and especially when you're on a Spanish trail there are memorials everywhere. People die, and there's a memorial. there's a cross, there's flowers, there's rocks, descanzos. There's homage to who lost their life, right where you're standing, right where you're walking. And so you you pass all these memorials. You're also out there in the middle of nowhere, and I heard someone call my name. I heard someone call my name. They didn't say Edie. They said Edith. I heard someone call my name, Edith, and I stopped in my tracks. I was in the middle of nowhere, and I said, yes, yes. And as soon as I said yes, I felt the feeling go away, the presence go away, if you will. But I felt, I felt the presence of the spirits that had come before me, the spirits that I carry within me, the spirit of my mother, who only called me Edith. I felt the spirit of my brother, who I lost to a tragic death when he was 44 years old. The spirit of others in our family who died tragic deaths. I felt the spirit, and it's like on the California Mission Trail, I felt the spirit of all the people where those crosses are, where those memorials are. And every time you stop, you say a prayer and you just, you feel so grateful to be alive. And those crosses like that are in Mexico. They call them the sanctuaries, you know, sanctuaries for the carol. And you will find in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a mountain that is so steep, the mules and the donkeys can barely even climb it. You will see at the top, you'll see a candle, candle. And the carol will stop, not say anything, just say a prayer. Because there in the wilderness desert of Baja, California, Mexico, in those Sierras, they deal with life and death every day. We all live with life and death every day, but we're entombed in our cars. We're entombed in our houses. We just don't realize how close it is. When you're out in the wilderness, Dave, when you're out walking across America, when you're out On a pilgrimage, when you're walking alone across Mexico, you know how close we are to death. When you have cancer, stage four cancer, it's a realization of how close we are to death and how precious, precious every step, every day, every breath, every person, every place, every story, how precious every Thing is
0: what stopped me in my tracks when i read your account of that moment is you wrote i felt a sense of release of lightness as if something i had been carrying for 600 miles had now been shed and the reason that stopped me is at that point you were about three quarters of the way through that walk and somewhere in the two-thirds to three-quarters range for Pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago, on the Camino Frances, walking from the French border onward towards Santiago, as as many pilgrims today do. Somewhere around that point, an equivalent distance, is the Cruz de Ferro. And the Cruz de Ferro is where pilgrims carry a rock symbolizing some burden, and then they release it at that moment, carrying it for hundreds of miles and shedding it at that point. Wow. It made me think about the timing, and it made me wonder if somehow we we need those hundreds of miles, those hundreds of kilometers of joy and suffering and tedium to prime us for that possibility of release.
1: Totally. I call it scattering the ashes, scattering the ashes. And we all have ashes that we need to scatter. On the Camino, it's a rock, it's a symbol, but scattering the ashes, scattering all those things purging ourselves, if you will, of all those things, purging ourselves of those things that are holding us back physically, emotionally, spiritually, purging, finding relief, finding joy, finding God, finding each other. You know, it's interesting, You start peeling away the onion when you're walking, and and these things just all make sense. I've always asked, What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? And an answer came to me out on the old California Mission Trail The purpose of life is to learn. And then the next question is, What is the purpose of learning? The purpose of learning is to connect us with our higher nature. What's the purpose of connecting with our higher nature? It's when we connect with our higher nature, then and then alone, are we able to connect with our higher power? And all of life is just a journey, step at a time to learn, to learn and to understand, to accept, and to free ourselves of that rock, those ashes, of those things that are holding us back spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And the only way I know to do that, the best way is on a pilgrimage and an old Camino.
0: And that brings us to where you are now. And so we'll wrap up with this. What brought you back on the road to walk the old Spanish trail and, and why the old Spanish trail and how has it been?
1: I could turn the table and I say, why are you walking across America? <laughs> By the way, 27 to 30 people are either walking across America at any point in time. So don't be all that impressed with it. We've got lots <laughs> of company out there when we're walking across America. There are a lot of nuts like we are.
0: It's a big place.
1: <laughs> okay, so why? And the reason is walkers have to have a place to walk. It's a purposeful walk. You just don't go out and and walk. You have a purposeful walk. It's purposeful. And you have to have a trail. You have a trail. You have a road. And you never want to walk the same path or the same trail twice. And for me, I have another purpose in that. I want to walk where no one else is walking. And people say, well, why don't you go to Spain and walk the Compostela? And the reason is there's 500,000 people out there walking that. Do you know how many people are down walking California, Baja, Mexico, the old Jesuit Trail? (laughs) Zero. Do you know how many people are out there walking the old Spanish Trail Road across the United States? Zero. And where you're walking, I bet that there are very, very few people, Dave, out there walking that discovery trail. It's true. Because that's what a walk is, is discovery. But you're not just discovering the trail. You're discovering who I am. What is my purpose? You know, what is my joy? What is my higher nature? Why am I here?
0: Any chance we might have a second book come out of the Spanish Trail experience?
1: You know, I would love to. But, you know, in life, one thing you realize is there's just not all the time to do what you want to do. And it's like, I love to walk. That's my joy. I can walk or I can write. But, you know, when I'm walking, I'm writing Mm -hmm. and this is a, it's a parallel, the same rhythm of walking is the same rhythm for writing. If you walk every day for 90 days, you're going to walk a thousand miles. If you write every day for three months, you're going to have an 80,000 word manuscript. How do I know? Because Harper Collins gave me three months to write my book, We signed a contract on May 27th. They wanted the book finished by August 31st, three months. Maybe they thought I wasn't going to live beyond those three months. (laughs) I was still having chemotherapy and all those things, scans and everything for three months. But anyway, so I locked myself in a casita in the desert, Palm Springs desert. And I'd get up early, early in the morning at sunrise and do a walk. And then I'd sit down. I started typing and writing at nine o'clock and i I wrote every day from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock, taking breaks every 45 minutes, you know, to get the lung pumping and the body pumping. And at the end, um, they wanted 78,000 words in 90 days. At the end of 90 days, I had 95,000 words. I had too many words. Because the simple act of writing every day for 90 days, you have a book. The simple act of walking Every day for 90 days is a thousand miles. So people who say, I could never do that. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. Yes, you can.
0: You can always write another word.
1: Yes. And I, <laughs> I do want to write another book. But right now, I feel so good that the, the good Lord allows me to walk. My feet are a mess, really. I've had so much chemotherapy. The neuropathy, you know, what is done to my feet its actually kind of disfigured. I have ugly, ugly feet. I would never show my feet to anyone. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But my feet are more important to me than my face. Mm -hmm. My feet are my life. And as long as the good Lord allows, I want to keep walking. And I always said this. I said this in the book. I'd rather die on a mule in Mexico. I'd rather die with my boots on out walking than in bed at home.
0: Edie, this has been a pleasure. You are an inspiration. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me.
1: Dave, I'm dying to walk with you. Let's go (laughs) walk.
0: I've been thinking about Edie's observation that walking is, to a large degree, a solitary activity and that we're likely to diverge from others due to our different pacing. I'm sure many of you listening have contrary experiences, as I've known plenty of pilgrims who spend much of their days walking in company. I've had it both ways, with longer solo journeys involving extensive time alone, and also student pilgrimages where I'm in community for most of each day's walk. There's something that admittedly feels more than a little unnatural About having to adjust my pace to conform to someone else's. This is especially true after I've been walking alone for a while and settled into an established routine. I've had some days when this really chafes, and my mind gets stuck on a weird feeling of wrongness, like I'm being restrained somehow. I've also, though, had some of my most enjoyable days of walking when I'm walking with a much slower cohort and I'm able to get that internal voice to shut the heck up and focus instead on the world around me. I stop more, I look backwards more, I take loads more pictures, talk to every farm animal. And that's without even addressing the value of the conversation that inevitably happens and even the silent camaraderie when you fall into a rhythm together. I don't want to mischaracterize Edie's thinking. If we were to spend more time on this, I'm sure she would acknowledge all of the upsides to walking with others. My main thought at the moment is that all walking is not created equal, and there are situations when solo or communal walking might be better aligned with our needs in the moment, and one of those might come more easily or less naturally for each of us. I've had students who were probably over-reliant at times on having peers with them, who would have benefited from developing a stronger sense of independence by walking alone a little more. And I've had others who gravitated towards isolation, but probably needed to get pulled out of their heads a bit more often. Thinking back to my summer walk, I like how the itinerary offered peaks and valleys when it came to crowd size. When I started, I had the year's worth of memories to process, and it was helpful to be mostly alone. By the time I reached the Norte, though, I was ready to be more sociable, and I particularly liked having evening company in the albergues. The mar gave me a break from all of that, before things ramped up on the ingles and then spiked on the portugues. In any case, circling back to where I started this episode, The point is that it's still entirely possible to find the right balance for you on the Camino, though California and Mexico in particular offer greater solitude if that's what you're hungering for. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Edie Littlefield-Sunby. Her book, The Mission Walker, is available from all online bookstores, and you can find her at themissionwalker.com. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again next week. Nobody asked me.